it's not, dude. And we all sit in the theater and we're all like, oh, yeah, that's that's you know, that's right. That's good. Well, why? Well, because we're still entranced by the by the story, by the movie. We aren't thinking that like he's fighting. Iron Man is fighting this guy who's purple and has, you know, the chin of a ball sack. Like, you know, it's, like we don't care. You know, he's an alien. Oh, it's Thor. He's a he's a god. You know, like, well, and then we go to the Bible and we're like, oh yeah, so like creation, it's all like literal. Yeah. King Comics, look out, what? tell them, look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Welcome to never the Belfast Podcast, where I still don't know what I'm doing. Uh, like Daniel was just saying I need a better intro, but I don't have one at the moment. <laughs> but it's funny because the... <clears throat> the more I don't seem to know what I'm doing, the more I think I'm trying to, the more I think I'm figuring it out, which I don't know, goes to what we're going to talk about today. But I'm Luke Byler, your host here with Daniel. And um, we've been having discussions as of late about, about literature, about how to view literature, lose, using Lewis as a proxy, uh, literature being a lens through which to see the world than to um, see how well that lens corresponds with your experience in the actual world. Act, actual world, again, you can ask questions about what, what do you mean by actual world? This is part of the debate there. But uh, from there, we talked about how literature functions as a lens <clears throat> to how the Bible and how literature and its function of lens uh, has communication in time and place, and then how understanding the Bible as communicative in time and place is essential to properly understand the kind of lens the Bible is giving you. And I think today we're trying to do some kind of a capstone on this mini series we've been doing to further discuss what kind of lens exactly is the Bible and maybe some wrong ways that the Bible has been used as a lens for proxy to the actual world. Um, and again, I'm going to hate that I keep using that phrase, but it seems to be the best phrase at the moment, actual world, whatever that means. Um, so yeah, Daniel, do you have anything else to add? I guess. Um, I can't really say I do at this point. Um, I think I'm a bit more comfortable with the phrase actual world than you are. I'll go ahead and just like, let that be That's out fair. there. That's fair. Um, and, and that might come up in the conversation a little bit, especially when we get to Peugeot. Sure. Uh, so yeah, but, today, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, let that be known at the outset that um, we may be coming at this from slightly different perspectives, which could be interesting. Okay. Um, even though I do agree with the thesis we're drawing no um, i do too this is what i've been drawing yeah right so and <clears throat> part of i've been obviously i've been thinking about this a lot part of the motivation for me and i've said this i think on every episode and we'll get to more of it explicitly today 
when we view, when you go to a movie, when you read a good book, this goes back to my reading the Bible as fiction, why Heiser uses that phrase, because he's right. There's something in your brain that just like, it's the suspension of disbelief, essentially. Right. And we talk, and you can also talk about things that happen in movies that break your suspension of disbelief. We had a conversation earlier about the Batman, certain things in that movie that you're like, okay, well, you know, you're kind of stepping outside the bounds of this, this movie itself, which doesn't engross me in the movie anymore. And that's what you mean when you say it broke your suspension of disbelief. Maybe it's bad acting, bad CGI, bad camera angles, could be a number of different things, bad writing, you know, clunky dialogue, whatever. But it takes you out of that world. It doesn't engross you. But we all have that thing in our brain that kind of says, okay, I'm accepting what's happening. And if things are written well, if things are shot well, if things are, if actors act well, you should be in that world for however long it takes you to watch the movie or however long it takes you to read the book or listen to the book. You aren't in there analyzing is this real? Quote unquote. Unless you're my dad and you're like, well, that gun doesn't hold that many cartridges and he just shot that many times and he didn't reload and you would have died from that fall. That And I'm like, I don't care, dad. Tom Cruise just hung out of a like C-140. It, like my suspension of disbelief came when I saw him running, you know, <laughs> like this is Mission Impossible. Okay. Um, I know what I'm getting into when I bought the ticket. Keyword impossible there. Exactly. Right. And some franchises like that one are built on certain you as an audience member, knowing you're going to suspend some amount of you know, disbelief to watch what happens on screen. Fast and Furious is the same way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we have this thing that turns off that just says, all right, cool. I'm here in this world for X amount of time. I'm just going to take what it is and later I can dissect it. And I think part of the problem that we have is when we come to the Bible, we've been taught for years and years and years and years and years that what we're meant to do is dissect it, is to not suspend our disbelief, is to get our um, emotional high in the morning, or how is God talking to me? You know, we could have, maybe this is where the whole episode, the SOAP method that I've been taught before, scripture, observation, application, and prayer. Well, it turns reading this beautiful text into something mechanical, worse than your worst English class, right? Why are the drapes blue? Why is Gatsby's tie gold? You know, why, why is the light green? All this stuff. Well, what are you doing in those questions? You're analyzing images and motifs in the text. But when you do when, how we're, we've been taught to interpret scripture is basically how do you place yourself in the text? It's reader response, which we can get to later. My point is we have these lenses and we're taught these lenses, not so much with film because we're not taught how to view film, which is something I'm trying to work on. But then all those special things about analyzing and appreciating literature and movies 
and the beautiful things that are done with images, character development, and why there's like catharsis at the end or sadness because there's a tragedy just disappears when people open the Bible. And I hate it. I, I actually hate it. So if anything, that's what I'm trying to fix. That's my big problem. That's why I've been doing this. Um, so there's my, there's my rant to kind of set up today. Um, and I think there's a reason for this push that we've had in the past few hundred years to view the Bible this way, to analyze it these certain ways. Because if you look at reception history, this is very new. People were allegorizing. And I mean, Daniel, you're more in, you're even more familiar with this than me. Mm-hmm. People are allegorizing and, you know, drawing on images from their day and images in the Bible previously. <clears throat> and it's even worth a whole episode. How do the new Testament authors envision the old Testament? They interpret it in ways that you would get, you would fail a hermeneutics paper today in seminary. If you did the, if you did what the writer of Hebrews does with the Old Testament. And I, I, one of the first papers I ever wrote in, in seminary for my Christian history class was the Scopes Monkey Trials, the loss of the evangelical imagination. Wow. And not to put all the blame on the defendants of the Scopes Monkey Trial. Fun fact is a lot of them weren't even like hardcore seven seven-day creationists, a lot of them are even okay with evolution. It was just about the law of, of, uh, of evolution taught in schools. That point gets lost a lot, but I think that the, the cultural vortex that was around that final day on the stand where the literalness of the Bible was basically on trial, I think that is a watershed moment for everything we're talking about which is why I wrote about it. Well, it became a hinge point Mm -hmm. in which everything else turned. And um, And underneath, and and this is maybe worth revisiting the paper and certain things, and we can discuss at some point, because even if you look at the, let's say, religiously political cartoons that were put out, especially by conservatives at the time, it's very, very interesting the things that they were concerned about and maybe rightfully concerned about with German higher criticism. But my critique of them would be they swung way too hard the other way, right? It was an overcorrection, which happens a lot in either side and in a lot of realms, but nonetheless overcorrection. So I'm trying to like swing the pendulum back uh, more towards the center. Um, and we all know these days, it feels impossible to live in the center, but. Yeah, well, and you, and I have, you and I have talked offline about how in our own respective contexts, we're viewed as the opposite political leaning oftentimes mm-hmm. because we both feel as though we're more centrist and that. Well, and even I, at night. Yeah, go ahead. I, I even had. um a very left-leaning individual point the finger at me and say, well, you're a right-wing activist. And I was like, no, I'm just not a left-wing activist. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to tell you, but 
I'm not that like, if you compare me to people who are actually right-wing activists, I'm not, I'm just not with you either. Um, being in the middle is something that's very, very hard. Um, and it sounds like, lot. it sounds like the response that the angel gave to, um, Joshua. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That passage is so, so interesting, right? Joshua, right before the fall of Jericho, angel of the Lord, drawn sword in hand. Are you for us or against us? Neither. Well, what do we, what do you do with that? Um, anyway, that's enough pre-show, I guess, unless you have anything else to say. Um, Um, I have a couple of things I could say now, or I could say later. So if you want to get to the main, we can save them for later. Okay. Uh, yeah, but that's my big rant for the beginning. Why have I been doing the things I've been doing because of that? Uh, I want to recapture some imagination for, uh, some of the older generation and, uh, let the younger generation know that there is ways in which to look at this that are, uh, beneficial and don't require you leaving the faith to participate. So we're going to start with Jordan Peterson, as uh, seems to be theme around here. You're welcome, Paul Vanderclay. <laughs> uh, this is, uh, I love this video so much because I think Jordan hits on something, hits on what I was talking about in a different way. And I think it's very, very helpful frame for this whole conversation we've been having. So let's not forget what's on the screen right now. It's the PowerPoint that he has as he gives this, you know, little discussion, a place for things, a forum for action, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts. Shakespeare, as you like it. I think that fundamentalists and atheistic scientists have the same problem. The fundamentalists, so we could say the Christian fundamentalists in the US, make the proposition that biblical stories, we'll call them mythological stories, are literal representations of the truth. But, and that might be true depending on what you mean by literal. But what they mean by literal, or what they attempt to make literal mean, is that they're in the same category as scientific facts. Because they don't have the idea that there are different ways of approaching truth, and that that truths can serve different purposes. They don't have a sense that your definition of truth is actually something like a tool, rather than an ontological statement about the reality of the world. And so the... Okay, I think it's important to pause and summarize his argument so far just make sure i'm tracking and you're tracking and you who's listening is tracking so he's laying out that fundamentalists fundamentalist christians and scientific atheists have the same problem that they see different things they see opposing things as scientific truth the only difference is that one would say to the other well yeah, yeah yeah but that's just the wrong scientific truth 
but they're confining truth to the scientific observable domain. So for the fundamentalist, and that's something Peugeot will get on in our next video. For the Christian fundamentalist, it's, well, yeah, but Genesis, what it's really, what Genesis is really doing is telling us about the creation of the world. And so they're looking under the text basically and saying that what this is talking about is the literal. And again, what do you mean by literal? Coming into existence, the ontology, the being of creation. Not a theological statement, although they might say that as well, but that would be a sub point mainly to the literality of the account being factual to how creation happened. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and what he'll dive into a little bit in more detail, I think, is the fact that the fundamentalist Christian and the atheist actually agree about the playing field that we're on, right? Um, they agree that the observable scientific is the type of truth being expressed by the text. What they disagree about is what to do with that reality. Um, this phenomenon happens at other points throughout Christian history. The first time it happened was the division between the Christian and the Jew. Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians saw Jesus as the Messiah, and there were disagreements about exactly how that functioned between those two. And, and even saying Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians is kind of a simplistic dichotomy um, and representation of that reality. And then Jews who did not end up becoming Christian disagreed that Jesus was the Messiah. But what happens with this Jew and Gentile um, Christian group, you have these two sides and certain Gentile Christians start arguing for, well, we don't need to keep this part of the law. We do need to keep this. And, and so a wedge gets drawn between, between the Gentile half and the Jewish half. Again, that's kind of a simplistic way of um, expressing it. And slowly over time, those communities agree about the fundamental point. What they do is they disagree about what to do with it. And so a bunch of people who are left in the middle are driven by this wedge into one of the two groups. And the basic theory um, that's um, given by, I believe his name is Daniel Boynarin, um, is that there was a, a middle group who was trying to pull both together, but the big cultural movement split them right down the middle and forced that middle group into one of the two sides. Same thing happens with Catholics and Protestants um, during the time of the Reformations. Um, both agree that traditional church, uh, like church traditions and things like icons and sacraments and ceremonies and all of that are, are things, right? But they disagree about the, the value of those things and the, and the institutions too. So the Protestants say, I'm going to I just spilled it. coffee. Um, <clears throat> we go on Catholics, Protestants. 
Yeah. So um, the Catholics and Protestants have this same dynamic, right? The, they disagree about the, the fundamental issue for them is um, the institution, the tradition, the interpretation, the liturgy, the sacraments, those things, right? But they disagree. We don't have liturgy. We're Protestant. Exactly. They disagree <laughs> about how those things, are they good or are they bad? Yeah. And so um, you have, uh, what's, what's his name? There was a, um, a Christian leader around that time, uh, Erasmus, I believe his name was. And he refused to take a side on the Reformation for a very, very long time. Both Luther and the Catholic Church were trying to get this guy to pick a side. And for a very long time, he didn't. Um, he was in the middle. Eventually, they threw the wedge, right? They pressured him to pick one, and he ended up going Catholic. Um, I actually think he went, he, I think he made the better choice for good reasons. Um, but that's a whole nother thing. But anyway, my point being, this kind of thing happens all of the time. It's happened throughout Christian history, even back, going back to the first century. And it's still happening now. This idea of we have the same playing field and we're talking about the same issue. We even agree that that issue in that playing field is correct. We just disagree about whether or not, like how to respond that playing field, right? The Catholics yeah. and Protestants with whether or not tradition and the institution is good or not. Science and fundamentalism, whether or not we both agree science is the realm in which we're talking about. We disagree about whether or not the science or the book tell us like which one of those things determines what we believe about it and influences right. the other. Yeah, and the the thing, the hard part is that the fundamentalist will drag the Bible in mm -hmm. and say that, again, this part of his point, that it is doing science, and I just yeah. fundamentally don't agree, so I just think, well, he'll say this too, it's a stupid game, so, anyway, I'll let him say it for me. The fundamentalists basically make the proposition that the idea that God created the world in six days, 5,000 years ago, is literally true. And they get the 5,000 year estimate, by the way, by going through the genealogies in the Old Testament and adding up the hypothetical ages and figuring out, you know, how long before Moses, Adam lived. And some bishop did that back in the, I think it was in the mid-1800s. I might be wrong about that, but it was somewhere back about that time. And more or less, that's been accepted as canonical fact ever since. And then the scientists say, well, yeah, those are empirical truths. They're just wrong. See, and that's the only difference there is between the fundamentalists and the atheist scientists. The fundamentalists say, those are fundamental scientific truths, and they're right. And the scientists say, well, they're scientific truths. They just happen to be wrong. Well, I think that's a stupid argument, personally. I mean, f for a bunch of reasons. One is that the people who wrote the, the ancient stories that we have access to were in no sh way, shape, or form scientists. You know, modern people tend to think that you think like a scientist, and people have always thought that way. First of all, you do not think like a scientist. Even scientists hardly even think like scientists. But if you're not scientifically trained, you don't think like a scientist at all. 
so one of the things, for example, that characterizes your thinking is confirmation bias and so if you have a theory, what you do is wander around in the world looking for reasons why it's true and a scientist does exactly the opposite of that in the little tiny narrow domain where he or she is actually capable of being a scientist and what they have is a theory and look for a way to prove it wrong but believe me, you don't run around doing that I mean, you, you can train yourself so now and then you can do that you know, you can learn to listen to people, for example on the off chance that you might be wrong but that is by no means a natural way of thinking and of course the, the, the fundamental philosophical axioms of the scientific method weren't developed until Descartes and Bacon and who else? Descartes, Bacon there's one more anyways, the name escapes me at the moment but you can argue about when science emerged but you, you, <laughs> it certainly emerged in its articulated form within the last thousand years I think you could say even more specifically that it emerged in the last 500 years now you might argue with that and say well what about the Greeks and other people who were fairly technologically sophisticated or who invented geometry or that kind of thing but yeah yeah bare precursors to the idea of empirical observation Aristotle for example when he was writing down his knowledge of the world it never occurred to him to actually go out in the world and look at it to see if what he assumed about it was true and it certainly never occurred to Aristotle to get 20 people to go look at the same thing independently write down exactly how they went about doing it compare the records and then extract out what was common I mean, that's a that seems self-evident to us to some degree but you know it was by no means self-evident to anyone 500 years ago and people Positive. still don't do it so his point that Aristotle never did the you know 20 studies comparative analysis thing I think is true I don't think that he's necessarily true that Aristotle never went out in the observable world and um, looked at things and observed them but because I think that a lot of things Aristotle did was look at the observable world and, and make some judgments but I think there's a significant difference between looking at the world yourself and making some judgments and conducting as we would in the modern context usually use as our support this kind of very high scientific standard um, those two things are very different even though they're working in the same kind of way um, so i would want to nuance that a little bit i think but yeah i i would i would agree with the overall conclusion yeah and i think his point before about <clears throat> well it's no this came out in the Mackey excerpts we talked about mm -hmm. they're not thinking like scientists they're describing like Aristotle describing what they see and you could you know I could hear someone argue well Luke what about inspiration couldn't God just, you know, tell them how it actually worked? How did Moses know about the creation of the world? Well, then you have a very weird view of inspiration, by the way. My, my, my answer to that would be, why do you think that's what God's concerned about? Yeah. Because I, I think what God's then, trying then, to do with the... But here's... Because it, it totally leaps over 
what we made what we talked about in that episode which is divine accommodation yeah it says no 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 no. what god really wanted to communicate was something to you and 21st century western world and in your scientific understanding so god's going to totally leapfrog thousands of years to write the story about a creation account that you can finally understand because you have the scientific know-how well that and in the episode we did on revelation which i think was a really good example of how to take some of these things we've been talking about and apply them um in that episode, you can see how what we've done with the book of Revelation is say, well, this was worthless for 2,000 years. And now in my situation, it means microchips, vaccines, or insert theory here, right? And so I think the fundamental flaw with that is that it re- removes it from time and place, and it breaks down a lot of the value and meaning that Rob Bell brings to the text using that time and place. And it's kind of prideful too, to assume that, oh, this thing was useless for 2000 years because we couldn't understand it properly. But now I all of a sudden am enlightened or it, it, it's written to me because I just so happen to be in the time that it's all going to take place. Yeah. And everyone who's had this apocalyptic view of it, apocalyptic, not in the actual definition of apocalypse as revelation. It's called the book of revelation. Apocalypsis in Greek literally means revelation or to reveal. Um, but we see it in the modern strain of apocalyptic literature, which is the end of the world. Um, But so many people have thought that their time was the time. Mm -hmm. Do we really think that God is that shallow to write something that only applies at one point in time to one generation of people living that has no value for anything else? at all other than to strike fear into the hearts of people uselessly. (sighs) I don't think that. I don't either. So it's not even, it's not plausible. If you know anything about the history of ideas, it's not plausible to posit that stories about the nature of reality that existed before 500 years ago were scientific in any but the most cursory of ways so why we have that argument continually is somewhat beyond me part of the reason is though that everyone, fundamentalists included really believe in scientific facts even though they hate it they'll use computers, they'll fly computers won't work, wouldn't work unless quantum mechanics were correct like the fact that you use a high-tech device indicates through your action that you actually accept the theories upon which it's predicated right, the same as flying, same as anything you do in a complex technological society you're stuck with it, you're reading by the lights, do they work? yeah, they work, well so it's really hard for people who are trying to hold on to a way of looking at the world that appears to contradict the scientific claims when everything they do is predicated on their acceptance of the validity of the scientific claims it's really tra- problematic for people and 
It's problematic in a real way, I think, because one of the problems with the scientific viewpoint is it doesn't tell you anything about what you should do with your life. It doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem of value at all. In fact, it might make it more difficult because one of the fundamental scientific claims, roughly speaking, is that every fact is of e equal utility, at least from a scientific perspective, right? There's no hierarchy of facts. It's not exactly, it's not exactly true because you can think of one theory as more true than another. But that boils down to saying that it's more useful than another. So I, I don't think that that's a really good exception. Okay, so fine. <clears throat> you got the scientific atheists on one end and you got the religious fundamentalists on the other and what they both agree on, whether they like it or not, is that there's so much power in the scientific method that it's difficult to dispute the validity of scientific facts. And they seem to exist in contradiction. And then we, because we both see that viewpoint as foundational, let's say, that's the ground in which we decide to fight. Yeah, well, we've let that idea dictate the playing field instead of saying that's not the right category for the thing that we're talking about, which is, I think, the better answer to that argument. Addiction mm -hmm. to the older archaic stories, if you also accept them as fact-based accounts. So what do we do about that? Well, if you're on the scientific atheist end of things, you say, well, those old stories are just superstitious science, second-rate, barbaric, archaic forms of science. You just dispense with them. They're nothing but trouble. And if you're on the fundamentalist side, you say, well, we'll try to shoehorn science into this framework. And really, that doesn't work very well. It doesn't work very well with the claims of evolution, for example. In fact, it works very badly. And that's a problem, because evolutionary theory is like, it's a killer theory. And it's, re it's, it's, it's really, really hard. And like, it's not a complete theory, and there's lots of things we don't know about evolution, but, you know, <laughs> trying to hand wave that away, that's, that's not gonna work without dispensing with most of biology. So, so that's a big problem. So, here's another way of thinking about it. You don't just need one way of looking at the world. Maybe you need two ways of looking at the world, and I'm not exactly sure how they should be related to one another, like which should take precedence under which circumstance. But one problem is, what's the world made of? You know, what's the world conceptualized as an objective place made of? And the other is, how should you conduct yourself while you're alive? And there's no reason to assume that those questions can be answered using the same approach. I mean, physics has its methods, and chemistry has its methods, and biology has its methods. So, a method for obtaining the truth can be bound to a domain. So, why would we necessarily assume that you could use the same set of tools to represent the world as a place of objects, and to represent it as a place in which a biological creature would act? I mean, anyways, I'm suggesting that we that we don't view it that way, that we have two different viewpoints, maybe they can be brought together, although it's not obvious how, but that it's not a tenable solution to get rid of one in favor of the other. And I think the reason for that is that you need to know how to conduct yourself in the world. You have to have a value system. 
You can't even look at the damn world without a value system It's not possible Your emotional health is dependent on a value system The way you interact with other people is dependent on a value system There's no getting away from it And you say, well, there's... Sorry, quick note here And this is something interesting that came up as I was trying to record the video about film language Because I was doing one on uh, framing in, in film Framing in film is like, it's literally hierarchy. It's literally, it's, it's composition. It's how are things placed in the frame to show you what is most important and what you should focus on. And if you learn to read that right, then you'll understand what's going on. And if the thing is with someone who's really good at composition and film, um, Someone like a uh, a Kubrick or a uh, or a Scorsese, they they know how to do it so well that whether you're looking for it or not, you will focus on what's important because they put it that way on purpose. And so, no. like I said, these things come up in every other domain. And that's a very explicit one where whether you think about it or not, you are viewing, you are told what to value in viewing the movie by how things are framed in certain shots. And you are more than that. You are told what's valuable maybe to certain characters, right? Were you going to yeah. say something? Yeah. Um, what he's talking about here and what you're talking about with the framing is um, the difference between is and ought, right? We, we can talk about what is, and that's the realm of science. We can talk about what ought to be or ought not to be. Um, and, I think, and I think, and I think, you know, that's what he gets in with value hierarchies. Um, hierarchy is a topic I could talk about for a while um so I, I won't but um we can come back to that later maybe but is versus ought is a useful distinction to make and that is not to say that everything that is in the bible is an ought right you ought to do there are plenty of things that i think just looking at the text again coming down to framing right how does the text frame it or ought nots and there are some things that are like wrestle with it and figure it out kind of a gray area. Um, but I think the fundamental question that the Bible is asking, and I believe that there is plenty of literal, historical, actual truth represented there. I'm not yes. saying that at all. What I am saying is the fundamental question is not what is or what was, what happened. The fundamental question is, what do you do about this? What does this story mean for behavior and life and how we do things, the way we view the world? Do we view the world as created by God? Do we view the world as a temple, right? That's ultimately what the seven-day creation cycle is trying to get us to see. And if we live in this temple creation, how do we behave? And what does that mean for the way we treat both the God of this temple and the other creatures in this temple? Um, 
it's, it's a fundamentally different question than how did the plants that were created on day three survive without the sun created on day four or whatever the, whatever the days were. Um, yeah. There's no justification for any value system from a scientific perspective. You're going to draw that conclusion that no value system is valid. Where the hell does that leave you? There's no down. There's no up. There's no rationale for moving in any direction. There's not even really any rationale for living. And so people th say things like that. Well, why, why the hell should I care what happens in a million years? Who's going to know the difference? It's like, yeah, yeah. True. Stupid, but true. And the reason I think it's stupid is because it's just a game, you know, I can take anything of any sort and find a context in which it's irrelevant. It's just a rational game, it's like, who cares if a hundred children freeze to death in a blizzard, who, what difference is it going to make a billion years? Well, what do you say to someone who says that? You say, well, seems like the wrong frame of reference, bucko, that's what it looks like to me, you know, because at some point you question the damn frame of reference, not what you derive from it. And it certainly seems to me that situations like that don't allow you to use that kind of frame of reference. There's something inhumane about it. And that trumps the logic, or at least it should. Okay, I want to go back to this Shakespeare quote. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts. So the question, ultimately, that Peterson is asking, and the thing he's proposing, is that if the debate, especially about these ancient texts, only get, predic only get value predicated on the fact of their coherence to the current scientific understanding, then that leaves us with no domain in which to understand how we should act in the world if all the world's a stage then how do we act? Well, as he said, then if that's your only frame, there's no way to answer the question because it's just not part of your frame, literally. And so I think this is the ultimate danger. And it's so funny that in the most conservative circles, you have the arguments for you know literal seven-day creationists and seem to be the most uh, moralistically judgmental as well in behavior. And and my critique is always, well, you pick and choose your literalism. Like, good luck. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and one thing, so this is a point that you, you were making earlier, and um, I'll make at least part of it now, uh, part of my follow-up to it now, is that uh, today in class, we, we talked about my preaching of the early church class, right? And, and you mentioned how I might have a little bit more experience with the way that um, previous Christian tradition interprets things differently. And I, I think, so we just read a homily, um, a poetic sermon by a man named Jacob Oserug. And it, um, the entire collection, he took stories of Jesus um, at least in the collection that we read, and wrote giant poems about them, like 600 lines of poetry. And he would give these as sermons. And when I first 
read one, I was kind of caught off guard and a bit uncomfortable because that's not how I view sermons. I don't view them as poetic representations of the story. I, I think a good sermon is exposition, right? You take the text, you break it down. And I still think that a good sermon, at least in our context, is exposition. Um, but in order to challenge myself, I wrote a 14-minute long poetic homily copying some of the things that Jacob did. And maybe one day I'll get on here and read it. Um, but anyway, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is it made me uncomfortable, one, to write that, but also to read him because sometimes he gets to some conclusions that I think are wrong um, from the text. And sometimes he exaggerates or adds to the story. You know, God forbid we, we add to the Bible, right? Um, and that made me a little uncomfortable. But what I slowly through the process of going through this class realized is that there's a difference between method and message. And I was tying those two things together. His method was poetic homily. His message was actually oftentimes something that I thought was really, really good. Like, Jesus is the Messiah, God incarnate, put your trust in him, all of those sorts of things, right? But because I was getting hung up on the fact that some of the things he did in his method, I was uncomfortable with, it left me uncomfortable even with the message that I kind of agreed with most of the time. And so I think that, you know, the, the method was his frame, his lens, his presentation or perspective, and the message was something separate. Um, Augustine does something similar in some of his sermons. He views the Psalms as being spoken by Jesus. Now, we would kind of be a little hesitant at that, at least within modern scholarship, um, to retroactively read Jesus' words into things like that. But it's interesting what that frame does. And again, I sometimes agree with his conclusions, sometimes don't. But in the times that I agree with his conclusions, it's a little hypocritical to then say that his method is completely not valid or not constructive in any way. Um, and I would say, because their contexts are a lot closer to the original context, they can operate legitimately with a bit more liberty than we can. And so I'm not necessarily arguing that we do the same thing now, but what I am saying is there's this frame at play, um, there's this lens at play, and there's a difference between the way things are communicated and what's being communicated. We need to take that into account. Um, and I was going to wrap that into something a bit more on Peterson, but I can't remember what it was. So, World of stage. Yeah. Oh, How to that, act. yes. Yeah. So the, the world's a stage is and ought, right? What do, what do we do versus what, is happening or um, what is in existence. And again, I think this both is, of those things. Go ahead. I, I think both of those things hold a place, but yeah. 
but we need both of them. And oftentimes we, um, in our modern empiricist dominated perspective, neglect the odds or the value of the odds. And we, again, let the playing field be dictated by that. But what's funny is, and like I've, you know, it's my argument and it's my big argument. We have these, whenever you watch a great movie or read a great book or even not a great book, an average book, you're participating in the odds. You're participating mm -hmm. in the, you know, how do we behave? And some representations are how do we not behave or be careful if you behave that way, i.e. Joker or, you know, Breaking Bad. But, or how do you behave? Uh, Aragorn, Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. you know. Um, uh, pursuit of happiness, like th things of the, like uplifting, courageous, right, where... Um, Vanderclay put out a recent video, which I want to do my own reaction to, or we can even react to it if we want, on um, movies as religion. He's he's critiquing uh, and reacting to some stuff from The Critical Drinker, which I think is pretty good. And I think it's it's interesting stuff. But my my point is that we understand this, I think, intuitively. When I mean, what is Dude, what, spoiler alert, not because it made like a billion dollars. What does Endgame tell us? What is the big thing that happens in that movie? I'm Iron Man. Okay, what does that mean? Well, the guy that was the like arrogant, narcissistic, rich asshole in Iron Man 1 and kind of two and kind of three, and then has this beef with Captain America that's an ideological war that's very greatly set up, by the way, and played mm -hmm. on in Infinity War, which is my favorite Marvel movie, side note, because I'm a sucker for gigantic tragedies. Um, and it was one of the only Marvel movies with real stakes, by the way, debate me on it. Um, but you see a man who goes from arrogant, narcissistic, you know, rich dude to unlike in infin unlike in infinity war and in game, I will sacrifice my one for the many, which is the debate that is happening in infinity war. The cap is not for, will you sacrifice the one for the many? No, we will not. Which is interesting. When you look at our cultural moment, Peugeot mm -hmm. has a whole video on human sacrifice and Infinity War might be worth a watch at some point, but my point is, it's an ought. Endgame is an ought. No, no, no. It's still even in our culture today. We will still spend billions of dollars to create and promote and watch this film film series that takes place, much like comic books do, over ten years, twenty years, that ends in. No, it's actually good. Like that thing that we talked about from Lewis, what we need is more drive, more dynamism, more self-sacrifice. That is self-sacrifice on the grandest scale, right? The one man sacrifice for half of humanity. It's an odd. 
Yeah. And we all sit in the theater and we're like, oh, no, but, you know, to critique Scorsese, oh, no, they're all just theme park rides. Well, hang on a second. Because, yeah, I'd agree with your general critique, like uh, modern, independent, you know, films that aren't already other IPs don't really get made in given space. True. I think those are some of the most important films that can get made, by the way, i.e. Taxi Driver, Joker, all of Scorsese's f- freaking filmography, you know, all of like Tarantino is basically the only modern one who can still do kind of whatever he wants because he's Quentin Tarantino. There's another one for the counter, by the way. Uh, but like, it's an odd dude. And we all sit in the theater and we're all like, oh yeah, that was, that's, you know, that's right. That's good. Well, why? Well, because we're still entranced by the, by the story by the movie we aren't thinking that like he's fighting iron man is fighting this guy who's purple and has you know the chin of a ball sack like you know it's like we don't care you know he's an alien oh it's thor he's a he's a god you know like well and then we go to the bible and we're like oh yeah so like creation it's all like literal what you know it's just I, I could rant about it forever and obviously I am, but I like, yeah. I can't get, I can't get past that. We will pay, you will pay $30 to like go to, the, I go to like the Alamo in Springfield. I pay $15 for the ticket and I at least spend $20 on drinks and food and sit there and like get mesmerized by a screen for two hours. And then, you know, when I go home and study the Bible, it's like, Oh yeah, but I'm supposed to look at this totally differently than how I like sat and watched that movie in awe or in disgust or whatever the emotion was. You know? Or I'm sorry, I could I could just keep going on about like I had this rant to Will the other day about certain visual cues that happened in a specific episode of Breaking Bad in season four. It's not worth going on about here. But the point is that, like, again, for someone who's smart, a filmmaker like Vince Gilligan, who knows what they're doing like can do all this in a way and give it to the audience when they don't even realize what's happening. And I just, I, I guess I just hate that. Like we have the frame that no, it's talking about is it's talking about the scientific reality. And you're like, but you don't act that way when you go see Marvel, like you don't care. <laughs> what? Well, and the argument it's, and that to they think would that make we, is that, Oh, could, should we use the 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 um the thing? Do we have time? What the thing? Doctor Strange? <laughs> I think we should. I think we should. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it. Do it. While you're pulling that up, I'll, I'll say a thing. Go ahead. So, one of the things I'm definitely you're... going to get um a copyright strike, and I will fight it. Sounds good. Because I got copyright striked for our Joker video, by the way. Oh, really? Dang. Which is super funny because there's like layers of commentary on top of the film that's yeah. being shown. But I got copyright striked by Warner Brothers. I should, I should, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Battle it. But I'm yeah. kind of lazy, too lazy to do it right now, sadly. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway, go on. Um, so one of the things that you talked about in the uh, Bible oh is gosh. fiction. It's not on... I'll just find it on YouTube somewhere. I'm sure someone, someone spliced it. Okay. Um, one of the things that I th- think you brought up in your 
Bible is fiction video, excuse me, is um, how when we read fiction, we're expecting certain literary tropes, but when we read the Bible, we're not, and how that sacrifices how much value we get out of reading the story. Today in my class, again, we talked about chiasm, and we talked about Kol uh, Vahomer, which is an argument that both an argument structure that both Jesus and Paul use. How much more? If this one thing is true, that's kind of small. How much more is this bigger thing true, right? And both of these types of arguments are literary structures, but we expect these kind of things in our fiction, but we don't know what to do with them when it comes to the Bible because we ex we don't expect it to work within a tropistic fashion. Um, one of the things that uh, I'll go ahead and say, I guess, kind of spoiler warning. Um, I hated the most recent Bond movie. I never saw it. I saw some, I saw like some people I trust on YouTube praising it. Some people I trust demolishing it. So I just forewent seeing the movie. Yeah. So even if, though I'm a big fan of Craig as Bond, by the way. Oh, I thought Craig is fantastic as Bond. I hate that movie. The reason I hate that movie is because it takes a giant dump on Craig as Bond. In multiple ways, but the it's biggest like the and last most Jedi. impactful, yeah, yeah, and the, the biggest and most impactful way that it does this, and if you don't want me to spoil the ending, I won't. Um, no, go ahead. I don't okay. care. I'll probably watch okay. it at some point in like three yeah. years when it's on yeah. Netflix and I have nothing to do. Sounds good. Bond dies at the end. Bond sacrifices his life to save his... Um, the woman he loves that he thought betrayed him at the beginning of the movie. Great, great moment of like healing kind of thing between, between their thing. Uh, they're like fractured relationship. But the thing that bothers me is that the tension throughout the entire Craig Bond saga is Bond's a living weapon who is 100% willing to sacrifice his life to save people. Yeah, the for tension King and is. For king and country. The tension for is... Queen, is it for can, queen and country? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The que the, but the tension is, can Bond actually live a life? Yeah, it's, the, it's basically right? the Batman question in another domain. Exactly. And can he get over the tragedy that happened in the first Bond movie with Vesper? Mm-hmm. And he processed in the second Bond movie. Can he get over the fact that these women in his life keep hurting him? Vesper and then M in Skyfall. And then finally he finds this new, I can't remember her name, in, um, in Spectre. And then it looks like she betrays him at the beginning of No Time to Die. And then by the end he realizes, oh, she hasn't. And um, she loves me and I love her. And we're going to, you know have this life and then he ends up having to sacrifice himself in order to stop world war three or whatever right now i don't hate sacrifice i am iron man right great moment beautiful absolutely beautiful and if they make or if they have robert downey jr ever come back as tony stark it would probably really upset me because i think that was a fantastic way to go out but to have bond die this way does see i am iron man that moment is and that the, the repetition of that line even yes and it's the concluding moment for tony stark's arc right because the concluding when he says moment it the first for Bond's time, it's very arrogant yeah. yes when yes. he says it the second time it's sacrificial sacrificial the concluding moment for bond 
is dying. It's the same thing he was willing to do the entire time. Right? Yeah. And so, sorry, this is me just airing my grief at that movie. That's fine. We expect, with I Am Iron Man, you kind of expect him to grow and mature, right? That's, that's the literary expectation. With Bond, you expect the same thing, but you don't get the same payoff. And so it makes you upset. That's what we have in fiction, right? With this, this expectation that certain things are going to play out. And we hope that in some ways our expectations are subverted, but we still want that to happen in satisfying ways. We don't have that with the Bible. When Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, there's this whole secret dialogue thing happening about the marriage of God and humanity. Because in the Old Testament, it's a trope that marriages happen, marriages later take place between people who meet at a well. You go to a well to find your bride. We miss that because we're not looking for the trope. And if you track the way that that goes throughout the rest of the narrative in John, it's beautiful. And this whole thing with water and the representation of water. But because we're not expecting it, because did he actually go to Samaria? I believe yes. I also believe that it's important to think about that. But what's more important for getting meaning out of the text is he met her at a well. That means something. I'm done. All right. So I think this is the right scene. I was watching Doctor Strange a like a week ago, two weeks ago, and then I finished watching it. <clears throat> and there's it's this scene when Strange first again. I kept getting Batman to continue Batman. I kept getting Batman like vibes as I was watching Dr. Strange because he goes to the mountain to learn from the mystics how to like fix himself, <laughs> which is archetypally done very well, by the way. Um, anyway, so let's play the scene. If it's not the exact one, then we can just cut it out, but I think it is. You're a man looking at the world through- Oh, sorry. Um, should I just play the scene and then describe why I'm playing it or describe it and then play it? I'd play it and then describe. Okay. What also- you, you spent your whole life- What? Um, are you, you, you're watching the clock? I know you might have to- Yeah, I'm watching point. the clock. Okay. Are you like hard out at any? Uh, at some point, but probably not until you are, so. Okay, cool. I've got some time. I just need to be able to like eat a snack before- Okay. my class so trying to widen that keyhole to see more sorry you're a man looking at the world through a keyhole have you spent your whole life trying to widen that keyhole to see more to know more and now on hearing that it can be widened in ways you can't imagine you reject the possibility no, i reject it because i do not believe in fairy tales about chakras or energy or the power of belief there is no such thing as spirit we are made of matter nothing more than just another tiny momentary speck within an indifferent universe you think too little of yourself oh you think you see through me do you or you don't 
but I see through you. I went in the exchange right before this, actually. Sorry. But that was so good, though. You, yeah. you, you think you see through me, but you don't. I see through you. I see what you're doing there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just the lens. Everything is transparent. There is no waterfall. The waterfall isn't sublime. That's your, your feelings about the waterfall. Yeah, and then you have this really trippy. Oh, wait, yeah. hang on. No, 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 I think we're good. I think we're good. I think we're good. What did you just do to me? I pushed your astral form out of your physical form. Listen, that tea. Psilocybin, LSD. It's just tea. With a little honey. What just happened? For a moment, you entered the astral dimension. What? A place where the soul exists apart from the body. Why are you doing this to me? To show you just how much you don't know. Open your eyes. Okay, we can stop it there because then it just gets really trippy for like three minutes. Um, <laughs> it does, no, it does. It really does. Um, what I love about that scene and part of the exchange right before that is they have this whole debate about vision, about how you view the world. And it's literally the religious perspective versus the scientific materialist mm -hmm. where Strange keeps talking about Oh, this is just that he's looking, even in that, what's in that tea? Psilocybin? He's looking for all these materialistic, physical um, uh, causes for what is going on, right? He's looking for how, oh, you healed this guy. I've never, the, I need, I need to find it. I need to find it, dude. It's so good. How did this guy get healed? Da, 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 right? Um, yeah. Well, they have that whole conversation, but but in this one, right, you, you, you make a good point. He keeps looking for a physical, medical, scientific out to something that is inherently unexplainable. Mm -hmm. right? And what was the phrase you used in the Egregore video? Um, you live in an enchanted world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's literally the debate. She's debating him about the enchantedness of reality. Yeah, and... The question that we have as modern people living in a modern, postmodern world is, do we live in some kind of spiritually enchanted world? Or is it is this that I can touch and see all that there is? Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> um, Yeah, I was going to go somewhere else, but my mind is blank. What's it called? The Great One? The Great Mother? Uh, great One, I think. The Ancient One. That's right. Ah, uh, here we are, here we are, here we are. All right, I found it. The sanctuary of our teacher, the ancient one, the ancient one, what's his real? Just, li just listen to how they talk to each other. 
and think about how you hear all this kind of stuff in the religious scientific debate, especially about the Bible. Right. Forget everything I think I know. Sorry. Thank you for... Okay, that's a, a thing. Thank you. Hello. Oh, thank you. And thank you. That thank you, ancient one, for seeing me. You're very welcome. The ancient one. Thank you, Master Mordo. Thank you, Master Hamir. Mr. Strange. Uh, doctor, actually. Well, no, not anymore, surely. Isn't that why you're here? You've undergone many procedures. Seven, right? Yeah. It's good tea. Yes. Did you heal a man named Pangborn, a paralyzed man? In a way. You helped him to walk again? Yes. How did you correct a complete C7, C8 spinal cord injury? Well, I didn't correct it. He couldn't walk. I convinced him that he could. You're not suggesting it was psychosomatic. When you reattach a severed nerve, is it you who heals it back together or the body? It's the cells. And the cells are only programmed to put themselves back together in very specific ways. Right. What if I told you that your own body could be convinced to put itself back together in all sorts of ways? You're talking about cellular regeneration. That's leading edge medical tech. Is that why you're working here without a governing medical board? I mean, just how experimental is your treatment? Quite. So you figured out a way to reprogram nerve cells to self-heal? No, Mr. Strange. I know how to reorient the spirit to better heal the body. The spirit to heal the body. All right, how do we do that? Where do we start? Don't like that map? Oh, no, it's, it's really good. It's just, you know, I've seen it before in gift shops. <laughs> and what about this one? Acupuncture, great. Yeah? What about that one? You're showing me an MRI scan. I do not believe this. Each of those maps was drawn up by someone who could see in part, but not the whole. I spent my last dollar getting here. One way ticket, and you're talking to me about healing through belief. You're a man looking at the world through a keyhole, and you spent your whole life trying to widen that keyhole, to see more, to know more, and now, on hearing that it can be widened in ways you can't imagine, you reject the possibility. No, I reject it because I... ...to see you looking at the world... ...ticket, and you're talking to me about healing through belief. You're a man looking at the world through a keyhole, and you spent your whole life trying to widen that keyhole, to see more, to know more, and now, on hearing that it can be widened in ways you can't imagine, you reject the possibility. No, I reject it because I do not believe in fairy tales about chakras or energy or the power of belief. There is no such thing as spirit. We are made of matter and nothing more. How many times have you heard that?
There is no such thing as spirit. Momentary speck within an indifferent universe. <clears throat> no such thing as spirit. No egregore. No team spirit. No spirit of the age. It's the it's it is the scientific atheist argument. He just espouses perfectly. Yeah. yeah. It's all physical. We are matter and nothing more. And I love her line on you spent your life looking through a keyhole mm -hmm. and then knowing that it can be widened, you reject it. I guess I'm just trying to widen it. Um, keep in mind, as we as we talk about Peugeot here, his whole channel is literally called The Symbolic World. He is an Eastern Orthodox icon carver. So that is his frame, his perspective, kind of the, the world in which he lives. Um, I think he's a very helpful person, if even in terms to shake up a lot of our modern scientific rationalism in view of the Bible, which is why I enjoy watching him. He's going to push on the idea of a literal meaning in the Bible. We can push back a little bit if we want to, but um, there's some phrases he uses that I think are fairly helpful. So let's begin. One of the problems I run into when talking to people about symbolism is the whole problem of the literal versus metaphor idea. And I've talked about this a little bit before, but I think I want to dive into that problem and uh, show you guys that in fact you know it isn't very much of a problem once you realize that there is no such thing as literal so welcome to the symbolic world now of course i Already hear a bunch of people screaming. No, he's saying that uh, that the Bible didn't happen. That these uh, that everything is just a metaphor. No, exactly. I'm trying to break that duality. I'm really trying to destroy it because it is really not useful in understanding how meaning occurs and how things manifest themselves. Now, when I say that there's no such thing as literal, what I mean by literal is this strange, pervasive idea that is still there in the West, it seems, that there is such a thing as a direct description of something, that there is such a thing as a description of something which is not uh, bound up in meaning and which is not bound up in narrative or an image that it is somehow a a a meaningless description that there is no um, it doesn't it's not <laughs> it's not already imbibed in meaning and you you get that all, all the time I mean, when you talk to people they ask you you know uh, especially in terms of a story in terms of the Bible especially people will argue over whether or not the description in the Bible are literal. Now, I, to be honest with you, at this point in my life, at this point in my understanding, I don't, I don't see what that even means. I can understand in the way that people talk about it, what it is they seem to inferring that it is somehow a neutral description of reality that... Keep that phrase in mind, a neutral description of reality. That's important because that's what Peterson's talking about. 
mm-hmm. with that thing that's agreed upon, but then it's just rejected because one side thinks what they think of as the neutral description is false. That is not in that doesn't already have value or meaning in, in late in it, but I don't understand how that is possible because when you describe something, no matter what it is you describe, you have to describe it, you have to have a purpose to describe it. You need a frame in order to talk about something because I, like I've told you a million times in, and like I keep repeating, it's that reality is too big. There are too many details. If I describe a series of events, I will use, I will do it with a purpose to make you understand something to, to, uh, I have to focus my attention on something because around the event that I'm describing, there are a million other events going on that I'm not describing. And the question is, why am I describing these events and not describing these other events? Now already that harms the problem of this notion of literal, because if I am not talking about, you know, uh, the fact that this person, if I'm telling a story about something and I'm not talking about, you know, the folds in their shirt, or I'm not talking about, you know, uh, the fact that they cut themselves shaving in the morning, you know, I'm not talking about those things because they're not relevant to what it is that I'm trying to get to. They're not part of the purpose that I'm the purpose for which I'm describing something. Now, depending on the purpose for which I'm describing something, I will use different types of language to describe it. And the idea that somehow accuracy in the, you know, this kind of scientific sense that somehow accuracy is always desirable is of course completely wrong. It It is completely absurd because accuracy also can fall into a, a, an indefinite amount of detail. You know, if let's say that I am describing a fight and I want you to understand what happened. Now, I could use a language that is extremely accurate. I could say something like, uh, you know, the, 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 the guy put his foot, left foot in front of his front foot and then the other person's right hand came at this speed towards his face and he slightly flinched when the, the, the fist hit his face, he displaced so many hairs and displaced so many pores. And then, uh, you know, uh, so many tissues in his, in his cheek were, were, were disturbed. And uh, then, uh, the, you know, his head moved three centimeters to the left and then it moved four, four centimeters backwards. And I can go on and on and on. And I could describe extremely accurately the event, but as I'm describing it accurately, I'm not getting to the purpose that I'm describing the event for, that, uh, that I'm describing this event to you for. Now, I could say something like, the guy got smashed. He, you know, he got totally, his ass got whooped. I could use all this hyperbolic language in order to help you understand what happened in the fight. And in- this goes back to Heiser's point about how we we go for the metaphorical first. Yeah. Dude, if if Joe Rogan commentated a UFC fight that way, everyone would fall asleep. No one, no one would want to watch it. You could even, in Peugeot's framing here, you could say that commentators are meant to like use, in some sense, to how how to say this. 
it depends on which way you're commentating for the for the watcher or for the i think this is even more true of like radio commentators because they're meant to you know give you visuals for what is happening then when you can't see it so you know what do we do with that are they literally describing everything that's happening well i think there's a lot of hyperbolic language that happens while they're trying to describe events in action in the end my hyperbolic language the fact that i'll use uh exaggerations that i'll use figures of speech that i'll use all these different um ways of talking about reality will end up being truer to the purpose that I'm using to describe the event than if I was accurate in describing it. Now that's extremely important to understand, especially if we're looking at stories in the Bible. Um, there are ways, each story in the Bible, each book in the Bible has different ways of describing things which are based on the purpose that they are describing them for. And so there are different styles, different ways. Um, there are different analogies which can be used in order to help you understand the, the, the reason for which I am describing the text. And so this very idea that somehow you can get to this literal description of reality is extremely problematic and it, it's not useful it's better to it's better to rather understand the purpose that a story is being for which a story is being told even a scientific even a scientific theory is never literal in the sense of a neutral description of reality when you do a scientific experiment you have to frame that scientific experiment extremely narrowly because like i said there are too many details and so if if my purpose in a scientific experiment is to prove something about water i will not give you descriptions of trees or descriptions of of rocks no i will talk about the fact the thing that i'm trying to describe and so that frame will will be extremely narrow and, the, and I will use a certain type of language, quantifiable language, in order to describe the phenomena that I'm explaining to you. And the purpose is so that you can understand the, the mechanistic causes that bring it about and so that maybe you can reproduce it mechanistically. But when we're telling, when we're describing an event, we don't, that's not always the reason why we're describing it. Like I said, to using figures, figures of speech can somehow sometimes be more effective and more powerful than than using uh, just you know this, this kind of quantifiable language. Now, if I use figures of speech or if I use analogies to describe something, does it mean that I'm not describing an event? Of course not. Of course, I'm. I can still be describing an event despite the fact that I'm using different types of ways of explaining it. Now, the stretch that I'm asking you guys to make is very important. You know, Christian the Christian way of describing reality is that the world is made by logos. The world is made by meaning and purpose and all of this. And so the very cosmology in which Christianity exists excludes the idea that there could be some kind of neutral reality that exists at the bottom somehow and that is not informed by meaning, by logos. You know, the, the Bible itself describes the creation process as a process which is full of meaning and purpose. And so I don't understand how, despite that, people can somehow still have this weird idea of this neutral reality which exists underneath. The, 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 the world of Christianity is a meeting of heaven and earth. 
And so it's a meaning of uh, patterns, logos, meaning, purpose, and this, this potentiality which is there at the bottom. You know, I, maybe you, people don't like the word potentiality. You can use another word. Uh, St. Maximus talks about logos and tropos, that is, this notion of purpose and meaning, and then the particularities of something. Those two awesome. have to join together. Particularities, I think that's really, really crucial to understand because what, what he's not saying and what could be hard to, to prevent yourself from hearing him say is that everything is relative, right? He's talking about particularities. He's not throwing out the waterfall to use the Lewis example. He's not saying that the world is completely transparent and you see through everything. He's not creating men without chests. He's- You can't have symbology if you have a transparent world either. Exactly. Um, he's not saying that there isn't an actual thing or that there isn't a literal thing. He's questioning the definition of literal, right? As a, new, well, as a neutral description. As a neutral description holistically. And that's one of the things that I think has been most helpful for me and most helpful when I describe this to others is that you can't describe everything that happens. This is why when we were um, seeing the Egregore video, with Vanderclay, I wanted you to pause on that drawing that he made of the world and us as a part of the truth, right? And then God outside of the world looking at all of the truth, right? Because we can't, we, from our perspective, first person can't describe third person truth entirely. That's why I've been describing truth as relational. Truth and the description of truth is found in the description I bring between the relationship of me and other things. That's not relative, right? Because I'm describing something that is there. I'm looking out the window right now at the grass in my yard. That's there. But I can also describe the way that the wind is blowing it. And I can probably do that in some poetic way or use some kind of analogy to describe it. And, and that is my way of relationally bringing truth and meaning to something. Meaning is inherent is what he's getting at. Yeah. And the, the danger with the scientific viewpoint being the foundation is that, in essence, the argument about, again, it always seems to come back to Genesis, but it has been this way since 1926, so almost 100 years. <clears throat> Saying that that reality is the neutral description of what happened under, literally undercuts mm -hmm what is being fought for as the most meaningful interpretation. You kneecap it. Right. And, and part, and of you could say, no, 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 no. Cause God creates or whatever. Da, da, da. Okay. Sure. But still like we're splitting hairs about some neutral description that like, even in that phrase, you want, you don't actually want yeah. you the literal seven day creationist or, you know, hardline creationist, no matter if you're seven day or not, which I would be somewhere in that spectrum, right? Want a description 
that is not neutral because God is first cause. That's not neutral. Yeah. That is yeah. not neutral. That has a, meaning inherent in it. Aquinas' it, argument is not a neutral argument. It is a very purpose-driven, meaning-driven argument. And saying that we, not recognizing that we cut down from everything to relevant factors that bring meaning to the world, right? Relevance is the consideration there. What he's talking about with the analogy with the fight, right? It's not relevant to the end of the story, whether or not the fist moves at a particular speed and impacts the face at this particular angle. It might be relevant to the fact that the guy got knocked out, right? If it had been a different angle, but we're not analyzing it for that. And if we are, then cool. Those are relevant factors for our purpose, 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 meaning, right? It all comes back to that. Together, and that that is a little mini, you could call it a mini incarnation. It's not an incarnation in the same way that Christ is incarnated, but it is analogous to the incarnation in the sense that it's an invisible meaning and purpose, which joins a kind of indefinite particularity. And that meeting together, that's where reality exists. That's where the world, where life, where all of these things are. Um, and once that starts to break in are thinking a lot of things become less problematic a lot of things become less difficult to to deal with because one of the problems that we have is that people seem to want you know let's say they're reading the story in genesis they're reading the uh the description of creation they want to get to this event they somehow think that they can access this neutral event which is behind the story you don't have access to that you know that you can't get to it because it doesn't exist okay this is super important this is what i've been saying but i think it's so true and that's why i i wanted you to pay attention to his his definition of a neutral description and this happens all the time we want to get on you know for the for the like crazy conservative and for the you know unhinged postmodernists. Oh, what really is going on here is that it's the same thing, right? Yeah. Oh, what's really going on here is that God uh, created the world in seven days and he didn't need the sun because he is the sun. And so he, you know, used photosynthesis to keep the plants alive on day three until it came about on day four. But and it's like, it just, it, it misses the forest for the trees. And I, I, I really like what he, there's no, the story that, in my mind, I'm like, look, the story is what we have. So there's no like there's no breaking the story. Mm -hmm. The story is what it is. Now what we can debate about things within the story and what they mean, this is Augustine's, you know, artistic interpretation. Yeah. You know, framework, yeah. right? Yep. But there's no past that. There's no under that. It mm -hmm. just it's not there. It yeah. it isn't there. There's yeah. no, there's no underneath it because it doesn't present itself in that way. It's just, there's, yeah, there's no past that. It's not there. So it gets me fired up. It's so aggravating.
no there's no past that dude it's just it's not i'm trying to think of a different example it's like uh, i mean we've used this example before and it's kind of a trite one but you know you read shakespeare and then you use the like the sonnets between romeo and juliet and ask you know Shakespeare. So, so what's your view on, you know, the sunrise as, you know, the, you know, as the sunrise, what are you telling us about, uh, you know, meteorology and the rotation like, of the earth? Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, what? It's, it's like, ask, it's like, uh, ordering the steak and asking why you didn't get the chicken. And it's like, well, or asking what the color blue smells like. Yeah. Yeah, there's no, doesn't, there's no, it's blue, man. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I have any more to say. It's just like, yes, there's no, there's no past that. It is what we have. And even in the Rob Bell example that we gave, you know, him talking about revelation. It's not that he's saying that there's a past that he's just saying, that there's elements in the story, in the scripture, there's themes that are going on, there's images that are given that would have been relevant to those who read the letter, who heard the letter. It's not that there's a past that, but it's a within this, again, like the Augustine framework of Genesis, within this story, within this frame, within these themes and these images, what are the possible meanings that we can derive? And there are a number of them, and they might all actually be true. Fair enough. Because you're also dumb to think that things cannot have multiple meanings. Anyone who does artistic work knows that there can be any preacher, any writer, any you know, songwriter, any musician knows that they can create something, say something, sing something, rap something. And then someone else, you can have a very specific meaning to what you were saying or theme of what you're trying to talk about. And someone else can hear that thing or listen to that thing and they can say, oh no, I saw what you were doing here. You did da 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 da. And usually as long as it coheres with your larger theme of what's going on, even if it wasn't explicitly what you thought you meant when you did the thing you're going to say yeah that's actually right and that's the funny thing also about inspiration is like oh i actually didn't see that when i wrote that but that actually works really well right i mean king talks about this when he wrote carrie he was like in the edit of carrie i realized a lot of the religious symbology i used when i initially wrote it things about blood things about water like baptism purification and he's like, I made them more. It's the same thing with Tolkien, right? When he wrote Lord of the Rings, it wasn't explicitly Christian, although then he realized as he wrote it, things that were very Christian about it and made them more explicit in the edit. You would never thought you would have heard those two things in the same sentence, would you? But again, how do these things get laid out and used symbolically is an important question. But again, like... I think this is, sorry, 
and we can finish up here in just a second. But I think this is the other problem people are having, or at least what I'm seeing as the problem people are having with the new Lord of the Rings series by Amazon is they're trying to have a past that moment with, with the text, right? This is essentially what's happening. Am I wrong? Yeah. Yeah. There is a, that quote by the producer at Amazon. Well, we thought we'd make, we'd make it fit into what the world actually looks like. Oh, you mean the like fantasy world that Tolkien created, you know, like 80 to a hundred years ago about like elves and dwarves and races of men and evil like gods and good gods and oh you mean that thing that's gonna you know look like the world we live in and again like break the rules of the text yeah. to accomplish those things I think that all of this has something to say about like the sacredness of writing that we don't adhere to in our modern context. But I think the point still stands is that they're trying to make a past that thing happen. And all the fandom says, no, you can't do that. Why can't you do that? Because it breaks the rules. It, it desanctifies in some sense what was written and Tolkien and Christopher Tolkien are no longer here to defend the sacredness of what they made. And so, and I'm not saying that the fundamentalists are like destroying the sacredness of the Bible. I think in their weird way, they're trying to preserve it, but in a wrong way. But I think I, I like, and this is why I mainly want to watch a video because of that phrase. People want to get to a neutral and not, this isn't in the case of Lord of the Rings, this isn't true, but people wanting to get to this neutral Oh, scientific fact is what we argue about, this observable world thing. And so if we can only get to that, then we'll understand the actual truth of what's going on. And it's like, no, 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 because there's this all these layers of these polemics going on with other creation narratives and how certain tropes are used to bring back a word that you said earlier and how it's laid out like a... Um, like a sanctuary, like a temple, seven days, man is made on the sixth day. This also has a lot to do with symbolism of 666, by the way. That's a whole other conversation. Um, you know, what is placed in the temple, God resting after the temple is created, us being his image, like all these things that you do not get to talk about when you want a past that neutral interpretation of the creation events of, you know, Genesis one through two. And you know, like with, I, I, I just, I don't know. I made that, I, that just clicked in my head with the, with the Tolkien stuff. It's like fans are mad because the, the new creators went a past that moment and there is no past that because it is just that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And uh, I'll, I'll end what I'll, what I'm going to say today on this. And if you want to follow yeah. up with anything, feel free. But um, when I first got to divinity school, I started thinking a lot about why, because I came from a, a culture in which Christian thought was very propositional and in this scientific kind of, you know, framework that we've been talking about. And I 
I started thinking a lot about why the Bible, I believe it's inspired, right? And that's actually my starting point is why would God inspire a text that is primarily narrative and poetry if what we're supposed to get out of it is proposition? Why not write Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologia instead of Genesis to Revelation? Because the majority of that is story. Nothing against Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologia. A lot of respect. I have a lot of respect for that work. And I actually thoroughly enjoy studying it when I do. It can be very weighty, very heavy. Um, and to a certain degree, I think, misses some marks, right? It goes past that sometimes. But I think it's an important work. But what's also interesting about Thomas's story is he never finished the work. And he lived for a year or so after he, he stopped, like he stopped doing it, even though it wasn't done. The reason he stopped is because he had, as he describes, a mystical encounter with God that he cannot describe. And he realized that everything he had ever done would not capture the glory of God. All of his proposition, all of his logic, everything that he was able to reason out brilliantly, I might add, he counted as worthless, to use a Pauline phrase, as filthy rags compared to the glory of God. And so I think what we've done in going past that and trying to make it all about the waterfall or on the other end of the spectrum, all about the lens is we miss the relational truth. If we fully and truly believe that God is a trinity, is inherently relational, why should the fundamental reality of truth be any different? If truth reflects our creator, truth is relational. I'll leave it there. And I don't necessarily have anything more to add to that. Um, yeah, I think this just tracks. Again, I was, I was wanting to do this episode to be a kind of capstone on, on what we've been talking about as far as the relationship between literature and the Bible, time and place. And I guess I'll say this in terms of your relational aspect. I think you've just come up with a new phrase to talk about something we've been talking about. To begin your life with Steve Muad'Dib, you must first put him in his time, born in the 57th year of the Pasha Emperor Shadim the Fourth. And in his place, Arrakis. Do not be deceived that he was born, that he was born on Caladan and lived his first 15 years there. The planet Arrakis, the one known as Dune, is forever his home. I've read it so many times I can quote it now. Yeah, I was about but, to comment on that. But point remains. There's no truth without that relationship of time and place. And like I said in, in my, you know, in my ranting about 
how do we function Christian politics? And, you know, why am I even talking to this camera, talking to you, doing what I'm doing, putting videos on the internet for like, you know, 100 people to watch and maybe 50, 80 people to download? Like, what's the point? Well, I'm in a specific time and place and I see, as we've been talking about, specific issues of how we deal with this past that in time and place. And in some sense, you could label me as very liberal on that front or very conservative, right? It just kind of depends on the topic in the day, apparently. But point is that I think in all of that, in all the communication that we do with each other, that God does with us, there is a divine and I'll take the human aspect first, because we all have accommodations for everyone we talk to. You know, some people call it code switching, which is maybe a whole nother debate, but uh, I think one to be had, right? But mainly what you're talking about in those instances, no matter if you're talking about, you know, black people with white people or white people with black people or Indian people with white people or whatever, however you want to do the, the race thing we would do nowadays, right? Well, you talk to your teachers different than you talk to your parents, different than you talk to your friends, right? We're all doing some kind of accommodation in our communication with others all the time, right? You write your papers differently than you talk to your friends, maybe. If you're me, you try not to because you want to sound smart, but... <laughs> Why would we, if God is trying, to your point, if God is trying to communicate to us as human beings, as the people of Israel and as Christians living then, as Christians living now, if Paul is trying to communicate to the church, if the prophets are trying to communicate to Israel, like, it's all encapsulated in a time and place, and there is human and divine accommodation going on. And even in that same way, there is a com when a filmmaker puts a certain thing in a frame, he is accommodating you as an audience member to focus on something specific. He is communicating that. And we have there's certain negative connotations we can have with the word accommodation. It's fine. We don't mean that. We're just serving it in a way that you can understand. So again, why would God serve it in a way that we or them could not understand? There's no so can past I say, that. Can I say one more thing? I know I said I was going to shut up after this, but I think this is, I, I said I was going to say it today when we were on the phone last week in preparation and I didn't, I never got around to it. And I just figured out how it fits in. Um, if you yeah, have to go, go I we, think we can, no, end I'm here. good. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Um, I'm running up. A I little think I'm done. Late. Okay. <clears throat> Limiting principle. I think is the same as accommodation in a way. Limiting principles restrict, right? They confine, they accommodate, they um, describe what's relevant as opposed to what's, what's everywhere and what's possible, right? We have limiting principles in morality, right? We cannot, I cannot, or maybe should not walk up to someone and shoot them in the face. Right. That's immoral. Right. Morality is a limiting principle. Arthur Fleck. Yeah. Yeah. 
you get what you anyway. Um, and so there, there is a, a limiting principle of morality in the way we relate to each other, in the way we relate to God, right? Love God, love people. Society is all about limiting principles. I mean, it's, 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 just, Pete, the, it's, it's just the debate of what principle is limiting. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, it's Peterson's theoretical game, right? You move first. What does that mean if we don't have a board or cards or any rules? You need limiting principles. But what's interesting, and I was talking to you about this last week, I, I put out on Instagram about a year ago, um, can God make a rock so big that he cannot move it? I got a lot of interesting responses back. And, you know, that's the gotcha question that atheists and agnostics like to ask Christians, double-barreled, so it's automatically not a good question. But I thought it'd be interesting to see what people said. And I had a really good answer worked up, right? No, God cannot make a rock so big that he cannot move it because he's all powerful. It's not actually limiting. It's not actually a limiting principle to say that God can't do certain things, right? The, the way you phrase the sentence doesn't impart an actual limitation, right? Saying God couldn't, could make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it is the limiting principle there. My mother hit me back with a response on Instagram though. And she's not a divinity school student. She's primarily podcast Christian educated, which is not a bad way to go. I mean, we're doing podcast, right? We're literally doing that. <clears throat> um, but she would not consider, I mean, she doesn't have a, um, I think she has an associate's degree. Um, I'm not saying that she's dumb by any stretch of the imagination. My mom is a very intelligent, capable um, person, but you know, she's, she's not like, and she doesn't view herself as super highfalutin intellectual, but she, she, she asked me in this kind of humble attitude, what do you mean by that question? I thought it was a really, really interesting question. And my answer to her was, I think the question is trying to get at, can God limit God's self? Can God limit himself? And her response blew me away. She said, oh, of course he can. I said, what do you mean by that, mom? Well, God became Jesus. That was a limitation. The incarnation itself was an accommodation. The incarnation itself was a limitation on God's self. That's the scandal, right? Muslims and Jews look at Christians and say, you're saying that God became, that God became particular. You're saying that the scandal that God could become a human being, could become as low as us and die. That's a scandal. And that's exactly the fundamental belief of Christianity is that God accommodated himself for our salvation to bring us to him. So yes, accommodation needs to happen and is always happening whether we want to or not. Truth is relational fundamentally because that's how we function and that's how God functions.
All right. Well, there's no better place to end it. So we'll end it there.